Good morning, Redeemer Church. What a joy to see you all here, so spread out. It makes my job a little more difficult to keep eye contact with every single person here. And that's what I like to do when I preach. So I'll have to make sure I'm more flexible today. I may have to walk around a little bit. Is that okay? (laughs) I'll keep social distance, though. It's so good to be back here. I, I was telling Brother Mickey, I'm always thrilled when I see in my inbox an email from Brother Ryan inviting me to be here with you. And uh, I pray that the pastor is refreshed on his time off and that he will come back reinvigorated. Everyone needs that, especially preachers. When you give and give and give and then give more, the tank can't run empty so quickly because the work of the ministry is impossible. A pastor cannot do what God called him to do. He needs something out of this world to strengthen and imbibe him and do him with power from on high. And so... I'm thankful that you love your pastor and allow him time like this to get away and know that this is as much for you as it is for him. Because when the pastor's heart's full, you'll be ministered to the way you need to be ministered unto. And again, I I thank you for allowing me to be here. And whatever favor you have towards me, I know that's a gift from God. It's the way he loves me. He's just that good. He loves His children and He likes to bless them and enrich their life. And I'm so grateful for God's enrichment of my life through my brief periods of time with you. Well, the text I pray the Lord be pleased to speak to us from this morning is from the book of Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. The Revelation of John. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. I want to speak this morning on the theme, How to Renew First Love. Revelation, chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. I'll be reading from the New King James Version. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars." And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you that you have left your first love. The ESV has it, but I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first, abandoned. Verse 5, Remember therefore 
from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. But this you have that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to him who overcomes. I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. The one characteristic that I have discovered among true Christians is that they all desire to know the Lord better. This is what distinguishes those from within the church from those who are false converts. So it must be said that if you do not hunger and thirst for the Lord Himself, well then, you are not a Christian. Now how can I make such a dogmatic and bold statement as that? Well, it's quite simple. We are living in a time of great deception, and that deception has entered into the church. Many are deceived into believing that they are Christians when they are not. They are, as the Apostle Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, having a form of godliness, but denying the power. Meaning on the outside to the public, they look like a Christian, but on the inside, they are missing the necessary equipment. You see, when God saves a man or a woman, He reworks their heart. He takes out the old dispositions and He replaces them with new and holy desires. And these inclinations, dispositions, are absolutely, fundamentally necessary for you and I to operate within the kingdom of God. And one piece of that equipment is this insatiable desire for Jesus. Insatiable simply means unquenchable. You can't get your feel. The more you experience Jesus, the more you want. And so since I have made this one piece of equipment a distinctive characteristic of all Christians, a discerning mark between those in the church who are truly converted and those who are not, I think it's wise to define what I mean by hunger and thirst. Well, I do not mean by that phrase simply it's lunchtime and you're ready to eat. And... By thirst, I don't mean you have a sensation for a drink of water. No, not at all. By hunger, I mean that you are malnourished. You've gone days without food. And by thirst, I mean a parched dryness coming from dehydration like a person in the middle of a desert where there is no water. Listen to the psalmist. He defines it perfectly with a beautiful word picture. Oh God... You are my God, my early will I seek you, my soul thirsts for you, my flesh longs for you in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. That's the Bible's way of describing this hungering and this thirsting for God. 
It is more than just a want, a casual desire. My friends, it's a propelling motive. And so the obvious question is this morning, how's your appetite? Are you thirsty? For the true Christian, there is this kind of desire lodged within them. However, it isn't always consistent. There are times it's more intense than others. But, listen carefully, it is always there. Always there. And it's often manifested as a sorrowful yet rejoicing sentiment. Every person in this room that's truly a Christian, you rejoice that you have been justified and accepted in the Beloved. And yet at the same time, there is this sorrowing that you don't know the Lord more intimately than you do. There is this yearning that translates as a sorrow that you don't know Him better. And so I ask you, is that the sentiment of your heart? Yes, there's joy in your salvation, but there's at the same moment, at the present time, there is this sorrow. Oh, I should be further along than I am. Oh, God, why am I so deformed in my heart? Oh, I wish I long for more of you. I also discover in my travels as I talk with new believers all the time, new places, that most true believers fear that no matter how hard they try, they will never be closer to Christ than what they are right now. They believe that intimacy with the Master is reserved for a special and select few, and unfortunately, they're not part of that elite group. I dare say most of you in this room are a part of that part of that group that I'm describing you right now. You genuinely desire to enjoy greater fellowship with the Savior, but you just don't think it will happen for you. You've tried only to fail. And with every try, every rededication, every prayer to draw closer to Christ, it's only ended in more disappointment. Am I describing you? How many of you have I just mentioned and described your heart? How many of you believe that the price to know the Lord better is more than you can afford? You've come to think that you'd have to live like a monk or you'd have to make severe changes to your routine that it's just not possible. From where have such ideas come? I ask you, where did you get that idea? I can tell you where you didn't get it. Why do we wrongly think that fellowship with Christ requires us to perfectly run these ninja warrior obstacle courses perfectly? Where did you get that idea? Well, I know where you didn't get it. You didn't get it from the Bible. Our very text tells us that Christ longs for more of you. He desires fellowship with you and intimacy. For this He died. Think of it, friend. Jesus died on the cross for more than just 
the erasement and the removal of sin from your record. He died that you and he could commune together. And he gets what he wants. And he's removed every obstacle to him that would hinder you and I from drawing near to you. Where did you get this idea? You didn't get it from God. I believe as if this book tells me over and again and brings joy to my heart that I can experience intimacy with him. It's very possible if you know the truth. And our text is the very truth that will help us draw nearer to Him. My outline is very simple today. It's just three words. Each point is a word. Remember, repent, and repeat. That's it. Remember, repent, and repeat. Let's look at the first word here. Remember, verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have Fallen. Now don't read that and think you're, he's discussing a particular location or place from which you have fallen. You'll misread it. The grammar and the context tells me that it's not a place, it's a person from which we have fallen. And therefore John is saying, remember who it is from whom you have left or abandoned first love. Who is he? Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be lifted up, ye everlasting doors, and let the King of glory come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, ye gates, and be lifted up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is. The King of glory. That's who we are remembering here this morning. Almighty God. The Creator Himself. Who was and is and is to come. This is who we are discussing this morning. Remember your Creator in the days of your youth. And I would suggest it's not a bad thing for us in our latter years to remember as well. Remember God. Remember the second person of this Godhead, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon himself the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself. That's what he did, didn't he? The Creator became the created, invested in the womb of the Virgin. And in the fullness of time, he was to be delivered. He took off his royal robes of heaven's royalty. And he put on the rags of humanity and poverty. And when he was born, there was no place to lay him but on a stack of hay in a feeding trough in a stinking barn. And for 30 years, he hid in obscurity in the village town of Nazareth. Think about that. God hiding in obscurity. It's mind-boggling, isn't it? At the age of 30, the very father that had sent him now sanctions him in the muddy waters of Jordan. The Bible tells us the heavens opened up. The Spirit descended in the form of a dove and 
remained upon him. And everyone there heard a voice. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And God anointed Jesus of Nazareth. And he went about doing good, healing the sick and those oppressed from the devil. And for three years, he followed his father's will perfectly. This is who you are to remember. That not only is he God of God, he's man of man. Bone of our bone. Flesh of our flesh. And when it came time for him to be delivered up, to finish his course, the father handed him a cup. A cup that was not pleasant to the taste or to the soul. And yet he refused it not. He took your sins. My sins. He took the judgment of God over those sins. And he took it upon himself. Betrayed by one of his own. Forsaken by his closest associates. He was smitten, spat upon. Scorned and scourged. Soldiers in mocking humor bowed the knee to him, shoved a reed in his hand for a scepter, twisted thorns for a crown. Pilate stands him up and says to the mob, Hail thy king! Behold thy king! And all they could do is reply, Crucify him! Crucify him! And crucify him they did. Led him out to the place of the skull, and there between heaven and earth, God and man, the God-man, suffered it all, paid it all, so that I am here today a free man. You are here a free woman, delivered of all of your past, the curse, and future judgment. It's gone, friend. It's gone. There's nothing against you. He suffered it all. He paid it all. He did it all. He ransomed His people. Remember Him. Remember Him. Three days later, He triumphed over death, the devil, and damnation. He crushed the skull of the adversary. And God hath highly exalted Him and given Him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus Christ, Every knee should bow of things in heaven, of things in earth, and things under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He's ascended and now He is seated on the throne of heaven. That's who you're to remember. Remember who it is and what He's done. But then also remember what He's done for you. Where did He find you? Found you in the same place he found me, in the pit and mire of my sin, reveling in my sin, enjoying my sin, drinking it in like water. That's where he found us, friend. If you're a Christian today, this is what he's done for you. He just didn't look over the edge of the pit and say, come on, get out of there. No, sir, he climbed down into the mud and the mire, stained and soiled with our filth, your filth. And He helped you out of that pit. And now He's cleansed you. My favorite hymn, And Can It Be, by Charles Wesley. It's my favorite because it's the gospel put to music. And that third stanza of that song tells you exactly what He's done for you. Long my imprisoned spirit lay. 
fast bound in sin and nature's night, thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? I'm still amazed by this. It's flabbergasting that God would die for me. I know what I am. I don't deserve to stand here, much less to be received by Him. And yet this is what He's done for me. He found me astray, wandering having no concern over the future and what would happen to me, enjoying the present moment, trying to get all I could from this evil present age. And He rescued me. My friends, have you gotten over it yet? Has the amazement subsided? Are you not as much amazed today as the day you were converted? I would say I'm more amazed now than I was that day. Because I've learned me more over these 34 years. And I see even more today my unworthiness. If it's become mundane, if your salvation and the love of God in Christ Jesus has become ordinary, you have abandoned first love. And it's my prayer this morning that God and God alone will rekindle, rekindle that affection. He will come and meet with you. Do you not realize that the opportunity of coming into this building will not give you anything special? This building cannot give you, it cannot grant you something that you need today. But he who inhabits this building does. And I speak not of brick and mortar. I speak of the temple of the living God. Within our midst is the living God this morning. He's seated here with you. He's in the aisles. He's here. He's with me. God is in this place to meet with you. Because He loves you and longs to be intimate with you. Remember who He is, what He's done, what He's done for you. The second word is repent, also from verse 5. Remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works or else I come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. He says it twice. What does this word tell us? Well, first of all, it tells me this. It's a sin. It's a sin to lose first love. That's what it tells me. That's why he uses this very strong word, repent. And it's my aim to make you to know this morning, dear sir, that the loss of first love is a terrible sin. And it's not the slight issue that you've made it out to be. And yet... We all rationalize it, don't we? Our defense is indefensible this morning with this word repent. 
We may rationalize and say, well, everybody loses first love eventually. Or no one can love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that may be true. But it in no way lessens this crime and make it less reprehensible as it is. It is totally, blatantly sinful. That's how God views it. And that's what's important here. Not reading this statement through the eyes of John, or even the preacher, or even your eyes. To read it through the eyes of Christ. This is His complaint to His own people. And so to help you today get a better grasp of God's perspective, what if, dear sir, after this service today, your wife, your wife, the significant other, comes to you and says to you, I'll cook your meals, I'll wash your clothes, I'll even submit myself to you, but I don't love you like I used to love you. My feelings toward you are far less than they were the day when I married you. Now tell me, those words would not just hover on the surface the pain would go more than skin deep, would it not? They'd be like a blade and they would cut you to the core and there those words would lodge. You would not be able to get over it. And yet, my friends, there is one who loves you more than a spouse and more than you love your spouse, who loves you with an undying love. And you could even say with a dying love, for me, whom him to death pursued. He pursued death because He loved you and me. And the more you love someone, the more they rebuff and repel and reject you, the deeper and greater the pain. We're dealing with God here who has the infinite capacity to feel infinitely more than you can feel. Yes, what she would say to you would wound you deeply, but not as deeply as it wounds Jesus when you do not desire Him as you once did. The sin is so serious that Christ threatens to remove the light of His glory from this church. That's how serious He takes this sin. Look again, verse 5. Remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place. Lest you repent. Do you know what he's saying? To remove the lampstand is to remove the light of that church which is to remove the glory of God. If I could just get Christians, if I could get churches to see that the life and light of that assembly, this assembly, is not you. It's not even your gifts. It's not your glowing personalities. It is the glory of Jesus Christ in you. There it is. That's the light and life of any true church. The glory. The beauty, the majesty, the indescribable excellence of Christ in and among you is the light. Great preaching 
and teaching is not the light. Great singing, great ministry is not the light. They should be the overflow of that light. And any ministry done outside without the glory of God is fleshly, carnal, and ineffectual. No, no, the light is Christ Himself. And He's threatening because of this one sin. The sin of allowing the heart to grow less enamored, less fascinated with Christ. He's willing to remove His glory. I've been in churches where the glory was not. And it's not fun. I remember many years ago preaching a revival meeting from Sunday through Wednesday in a little country church. About two months later, I get a phone call. I'm in a conference getting ready to speak later that day. And the pastor on the other end was crying so hard, I could not understand him. And I finally said, you got to calm yourself and collect yourself. I can't understand what you're saying. Finally, he did. He said, I got a phone call today. The deacons are going to fire me, terminate my services my, as pastor here. Can you come and be at the meeting? It was about a two-hour drive, even though I knew that I was supposed to speak. There were other men who could take my place. I thought about it, weighed it out. But then he said, one of the charges against me is you. They're accusing me of bringing a false prophet, a heretic in. You. Well, all I had done was preach the gospel to them. But that's how far they had drifted from the truth. A traditional, just an old traditional Baptist church you pray a prayer and you get your name on the roll. And whether you join the church or ever be seen at the church ever again, when you die, you're going to heaven. That kind of nonsense and rubbish. And I came against that and they considered it a false gospel. And so I was one of the charges. So I said, well, I need to be there, don't I? And so I did. And I never, never have seen anything like it. They marched in line and step one with another, came in like a firing squad. The chairman of the deacons read the charges and then they all got up in unison and began to march out just as they had come in. I said, wait a minute, stop. The chairman of the deacons wheeled around, pointed at me and says, you have no authority here. I know I have no authority. I'm not a member of this church. I realize this. But God's word is the authority and you're violating God's word in what you're doing here today. They paid me no heed. They continued to walk out. I wheeled around in the chair that I was seated in and dropped to my knees. And here's what I began to pray. Lord, smite them. Smite them. Now you say that doesn't sound very gracious or godly. Well, you haven't read the book of Psalms lately. David was a man after God's own heart. He could sing hallelujah and take your head off in the same breath. Imprecatory prayers. I've prayed imprecatory prayers. God has answered imprecatory prayers. He has saved me many times. But immediately, immediately as I began to pray, I knew that I was not in the will of God to ask for this. 
And I also intuitively, instinctively knew the answer why. It was because God's glory had already departed that church long ago. And for God to display His power and, and strike those men would be a display of His glory. It would be a display of the light of that glory and He would not do it. And they did what they intended to do. They removed the pastor. Now that's a severe illustration. What's sad is nothing like that was going on in the church at Ephesus. When you read the letter here as we have today, you read a totally opposite. You read of a vibrant church, a, a, a vocational, meaning busy, laboring for God. You don't see any kind of detraction from the truth of the gospel at all. And yet, God said, one sin, one sin, sufficient enough. Listen, Redeemer. If collectively the majority of you are walking in lukewarmness to God, God says, that's enough. I'm out of here. And I know that that doesn't make sense to most of us who say that God will never leave us or abandon us. I didn't say about losing your salvation. I'm talking about the light of the glory in a church. Because the sad fact is, when the lamp goes, that church can still operate. That church will still function. And nobody will know the difference. Because they have been out of love so long, they won't recognize the difference. I think we know what the word repent means. We've so become accustomed to it that it's lost its power. May God revive its power to us today. Number three, repeat. Again, verse five. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works. Now, many of you have heard sermons on this passage throughout the years. I'm safe in saying, I think, that if you've been saved five, ten years, you've heard probably more than one message on this text. Remember, repent and do your first works. But it's at this point that I'm going to depart from most of those sermons. Because I think most preachers have actually defined first works inaccurately. I do not believe it means start doing the things you did when you were first saved. I don't believe that at all. The context will not let me go there. Look, look at what church this is. It's the church at Ephesus. And the church at Ephesus, according to this very letter by Jesus, through John, says they had never stopped doing the things they did when they were first saved. They were still doing those first works, the things they were doing when they were first converted. Let's look at some of these commendable statements. First, Jesus says, you're a hard-working church. They excelled in ministry. Look at verse 2 and verse 3. He says it three times. Number one, I know your works. I know your labor, verse 3, and you have labored for my namesake. 
This is an industrious church, not a lazy church. They were still doing the things they did when they were first converted. They hadn't stopped. Number two, he commends them for being an extremely patient church. They were extremely patient. They kept their eyes single and on the prize. Look at verse 2 and 3 again. He mentions it four times. In verse 2, he mentions your patience. And then verse 3, he states it again. You have persevered. And then number 3, he says it a third time. Have patience. And number 4, and have not become weary. They didn't become weary for all their labor and industry. Extremely patient. Persevering. stick to Number three. Here's a church, ready or not, that was striving to be holy. Striving to be holy. Look at verse 2. The very last of the verse. The last phrase. And that you cannot bear those who are evil. It means exactly what it says. Unholy men, they could not tolerate lawbreakers, sinners, men of the flesh, carnality. They would not abide by. They believed and operated by the same definition of love that Paul gives us in 1 Corinthians 13, that love does not rejoice in iniquity. They could not and would not rejoice in any form of iniquity. And fourthly and lastly, they're a theologically and doctrinally solid church. Once again, verse 2, And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars. Verse 6, You also hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate, a very heretical group. Isn't this remarkable? They could not abide by unsound doctrine. They had their doctrine down. They were theological, uh, theologically astute. They had their I's dotted and their T's crossed. And why shouldn't they? Look who founded them. The Apostle Paul was their founding pastor. And did you know that he spent more time in Ephesus than any other church plant? Three years. They were well grounded in the doctrine of God. That's why he could write such a lofty and theological treatise as if the book of Ephesians, those first three chapters, there's nothing that can compare in all of God's Word to it. It is high, high truth. And not only did they have the Apostle Paul as their beginning pastor, but his protege, his own personal disciple, his son in the faith, Timothy, followed him. And after Timothy, a few years later, do you know who else? A man of great celebrity and status himself was their pastor. The Apostle John, the very man, the very man that is receiving this letter and pinning the words. John. So you had Paul and John. What heavyweights in the New Testament church. What great apostles. You can't get hardly any higher than that, can you? No wonder they were theologically sound. They were reformed. And brother, if it had been a 1689 confession, they would have held to it as well. They believed it. So you cannot say, do your first works means go back and do the things you were doing when you were first saved. They were doing, and they had for almost 30 years. So what then can it mean? 
I think this is what it means. It does mean doing what you did when you were first converted, but doing it with the same heart. You see, in God's eyes, to do something and do it with a different heart is completely different works. They're not the same works because they're not flowing out of the same well. But when you do the same works out of the same fountain, the same heart, well then, that's first works. It's just not what you do, it's why you do it. That's first works. And so the critical question for Redeemer Church this morning is, how is it that we can do our first works with the same heart? And here's where the bad news, but yet... It has a silver lining. Bad news first. You can't. You can't. You cannot just go back and with all sincerity increase first love for Jesus. It's impossible. Morally and in every other way. So here's the question for you to help you understand and be able to comply with Jesus' command. It's a very critical question. Are you willing to answer it? How did you have the heart of love and fascination with Jesus Christ that He calls first love? How did you ever have it? If, you, if you're a Christian, you had it. How did you get it? If you can answer that question, then you can answer how. You can get it again. Let me help you. You did not manufacture it. It didn't come from you. It never comes from this sinner. It never comes from the Christian's heart. Not from them alone. It was not there, but it came. It came to you. It came to me. How did first love come? Why did it come? What caused me to love him at the first? Well, I want to redirect your attention now to another epistle that John wrote. We read it, the very text that was read earlier, 1 John chapter 4. Turn there and follow along with me for a few moments. 1 John chapter 4. Let's look at verse 10. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So do you see something here? Do you see something of the makings of order? You didn't love God. God did not forgive you on the basis that you loved Him that you somehow converted your heart to love Him when you once didn't. No, no. John establishes the fact that it's God who loved us when we did not love Him. And beloved, listen carefully. It is God who loves you now when you don't love Him with the same intensity that you once had. He's still loving you. Look at verse 19 of the same text. 1 John 4. Verse 19, we love Him because He first loved us. There it is. There's the answer to our critical question. Where did first love come from? It 
came from you experiencing God's love for you. Why is it called first love? When he's writing to the Ephesians. Because it was the first time they experienced the love of God. And thereby they loved God. Now listen. You can tinker around in your heart all you want to and try to find a switch that will renew first love. You can try to find a dial and dial it up and be more devoted to Christ and read your Bibles more and pray a little bit more and maybe add fasting to your spiritual disciplines. I'm all for the spiritual disciplines. They have value in the Christian life and drawing closer to Christ. But they will not generate first love. Forget it. It's impossible. John is telling you here that any love you have for God is reflexive from Him loving you. How many of you have been to the doctor and he brings out the rubber mallet to check your reflexes? You know the little triangular mallet? Rubber, rubber-headed thing? And he hits you right, right there. Have you ever tried to sit there knowing you're, he's going to do that and try to make your knee not move? Try to hold it? I have. It's impossible. If he strikes the right place, hits the nerve, the nerve will reflex automatically. Can't help it. What John is telling you here is this, that your heart cannot help it. It, in reflex, loves God when you, it's touched by the love of God. The key to renewing first love is not rededicatory prayers, promising to do better. No, 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 no. It's an absolute dependency upon God and His love for you. It's going back to the fountain. God who is love and letting Him pour His love into you and you will love Him. You have abandoned. You've left first love. Your heart's no longer moved as warmly and tenderly as it once did. Okay, we've all been there. What's my solution? The solution is to go where you got that love in the beginning. How did you get it then? Because somehow, inexplicably, you experience God's love. Paul talks about it in Romans chapter 5, 5. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who is given to us. The moment you saw your sin and you believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God was poured into your heart so that your own heart resonated reflexively and said, Oh God, I love you. When the love of God was poured into your heart, something leapt within so that you could cry out, Abba, Father. What was that? Your sincerity, your devotion, 
Your great love for God? No, it's a result of God's great love for you. And my friend, that's what you need today. You need the Lord God to visit you this morning. This church needs a revisit of the love of God. And how can we have that today? How can we when we have been so shameful and despised Him in so many ways, arrogant and self-willed, how could He still love us? Because He is love. And He's covenanted to that love with you. And it's here for you to experience if you so desire. And so the Scriptures tells us, commands us if I can be so bold. We are commanded, commanded to continually experience the love of God for ourselves. And if you would, you would never lose first love. You would never grow lukewarm. This is what normal Christianity is. That you are constantly experiencing the love of God for you, and thereby you can love God and others. You go back to 1 John chapter 4, and you read that whole section. And that's what John is saying. We read 1 John 4, and we hear sermons on love one another, and now the duty comes. Now the law is being applied to the heart. You've got to love one another. got to love one another. You've got to do this. You've got to do this, man. Suck it up. I know you don't like them, but you've got to love them. Thank God you don't have to like them, but you do have to love them. And that's nothing but law. That's the formula of legalism. No. God knows you can't love one another. Even your best friend, there's times you're going to disagree. Even your best friend who ought to be your husband or your wife. Sometimes they are not lovable. And by the way, don't tell anybody, but sometimes you aren't either. How can I love them? Well, John is saying, if you are experiencing the love of God, you will love one another. When a church is divided, I know exactly what the problem is and I know what the solution is. It's been a long time for anybody in that place who's experienced God's love in a real tangible way and thereby... If they would just experience God's love for them afresh, they'd start loving one another reflexively. It just happens. You can't keep it. It's not something that can be damned up. The love of God creates a reflex in the human heart. Have you ever heard of Jude chapter 1 verse 21? Keep yourselves in the love of God. Now, why is he saying that to Christians? Because we need to keep ourselves in the love of God. You constantly need to be experiencing the love of God for you. You see, I'm no good to you until I have first been filled with God's love for me. Now I have something with which to minister to you. Now I have an overflow. Now I have something that's not of me, but of heaven. And that's what we all need. We don't need more carnality. We need heaven. We need God. You have trouble loving someone? Just let God love you and see much how much trouble it cost Him to love you and you'll love someone else freely. When you really understand the trouble it costs God to love you and to continue to love you and abide with you, my dear friend, the heart will melt and soften not just towards God but towards others. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Did you know that you should pray for God to direct your heart into the love of Christ? Yes, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 5. Now may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God. But the one that I like 
that says it so wonderfully. Tells me I should pray to know by experience. Not theological, but by experience. I am to know by experience the love of God for me. Now the theology will drive the experience. No theology, no experience. But theology is not enough. I want you to turn and follow along with me. Because I think I've got some doubters here. I've got some Thomases. And you've got to stick your finger into the riven side before you'll believe. Ephesians 3, verses 17 through 19. Isn't this interesting? The same church to which our text was penned has the answer. Had it all, they had it all along. They had just forgotten Ephesians chapter 3, beginning with verse 17. This is Paul's prayer for the Ephesian church and believers. He says in verse 17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Stop right there. Quit reading. Look at me, please. Why is Paul praying for Christ to dwell in their hearts by faith when he already dwells in their heart by faith? Good question. I mean, I think it's a stupendous question. I guess maybe because I thought of it, but it's still a good question in spite of me thinking of it. It is. Why are you praying for Christ to dwell in believers' hearts when He already dwells in their hearts by faith? It can only be answered by one answer. And that is this. There's more of Jesus to experience by faith in your heart. There's more of this Christ who dwells within for you to be intimate and have communion with. There's more of His love to experience. And speaking of love, Paul continues. Now let's go back to the text. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. Stop right there. Look up at me again. Now wait a minute, Paul. I don't understand. You're praying that these believers, and I believe that includes us here today, oh, what amazing thought that today we could experience this love that goes beyond height, breadth, width, and depth. But why are you praying for them to know, to know the love of God which passes knowledge. How do you know something that surpasses knowledge? <laughs> How can you grasp something that can't be known, in other words? And the answer is, because this is not theological. This is not an intellectual request that they might theologically, intellectually understand more about God's love. No, he is praying that they in experiential knowledge that they might know by experience this love that passes surpasses the intellect and have you not experienced that the love of God just being poured into your heart that you just are blown away you cannot fathom how is it possible he loved me like this if that's not happened to you, I don't think you're a Christian. I just don't know how you could be. But those of you that have, take heart. God wants that 
to not be just an historical experience. He wants it to be a living reality. And that's what Paul's praying for. That they would experience for themselves this overwhelming love of God that supersedes your brain's ability to decipher. Oh, that's what we need here this morning. That's how you renew first love. You go back to who it is from whom you have fallen and you remember who He is. You remember what He's done. You remember what He's done for you and what He's still doing for you. And you repent, you turn, and you return by letting Him love you through believing the truth of who He is and His love for you. How do you experience the love of God? Are you just going to sit and wait for something to zap you? No, not me. The Bible tells me that the moment I believe what the book says about God's love for me, the moment I really believe it, not just know it with my head, because this supersedes, it's beyond knowledge. But the moment I believe by faith what God said about His love for me, my dear friend, immediately I experience the love of God. It's never failed me. Now, I remember sometimes with my brain and I'm trying to believe by my intellect alone and it doesn't happen. No, sir, it's when I commit myself to it. In spite of my feelings, in spite of my circumstances, in spite of my sin, in spite of my sin. This is what your word says. It must be so. You are not a liar. You cannot change. You are the immutable God and this word is immutable. And so therefore, my God, I'm staking everything upon this fact that you love me through Christ Jesus my Lord. That that love is inseparable to me. Neither life nor death, creatures, principalities, things to come. No other creature, nothing ever shall separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, my Lord. I believe it, and I'm committed to it. And immediately, my heart flutters. Something on the inside happens. The tears begin to come to the eyes. And I know that I know. That's how you renew first love. Not by trying to ratchet up the heart. Exercise it until you feel something. No. It's getting where God is and believing what He said about His heart towards you. That's how. More of you. More of you. Lord, I've had all, but what I need is more of you. Of things I've had my feel, and yet I hunger still, empty and bare. Lord, hear my prayer for more of you. Isn't that, that's how we, that's what we ought to do right here, right now. Oh God, I'm empty. Here's my cup, Lord. I lift it up, Lord. Come and quench this thirsting of my soul. Bread of heaven. Feed me till I want no more. Here's my cup, Lord. Fill it up and make me whole. That's how first love is renewed. Amen. And amen. Let's pray.
O blessed Father, God of incomprehensible love, great is your affections for us. Great, O Lord, is your compassions toward us. Thy loving kindness is better than life. (laughs) Oh, thank you for the love that we have experienced. And Lord, we would pray that we would revel in it again. Come and bless this, your dear people. These are your offspring born by your Spirit. They've come through the blood and through the water. And they're yours, your prized possession. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a special people. Do not withhold from them the best thing they could experience today, Father. And that is your love. And Lord, if it's real love, we don't have to earn it. It'll never be deserved. It'll never be merited. We come to you confessing what we are. We're nothing. And we can do nothing without you. Lord, we still have a proclivity to be our own man and own woman, complete control. And yes, we thank you for these new dispositions, these holy desires. But Lord, there's still some contrary desires within us. We pray, Lord, the only way to overcome them according to your word is to experience your love afresh and anew. Oh, I pray that heaven would be opened up here today and the vials of love will be poured out incessantly. Lord, come, come, come. Please, right now, do whatever only God can do. We confess our need of Thee. Oh, Lord, love us. Tangibly love us. I pray that men and women would not look to feelings right now. No, please spare us. Protect us. May they look to the Word. Thy Word that says You love us with an undying love. A love that will last eternally. That will never, ever, ever be diminished. No matter what we do or what we've done. A love that cannot separate itself from us. You have set Your love upon us. And therefore it will remain. Help us to believe that. Let faith hear the word of God today. For faith cometh by hearing and hearing by your word. They need to hear you, Lord, not me. Be pleased to speak. Oh, God, melt our hardness that's been developed because we haven't been where your love is so long. We've become calloused. Oh, Lord, soften us, melt us. Melt us down. Break us, Lord. I pray every ounce of resistance that's in any person here would be broken down, removed, destroyed. You can do it. Your power is not limited. What are we compared to Thee? Do it, Lord. Come. We we open up our hearts. We say, strike them. Strike them now. Don't tarry, Lord. Don't prolong this. Don't wait. Do it now. Oh, Father, do not pass us by. We need Thee. We're dry. 
We're like a parched soul in the midst of a desert. And it's been a long time since we drank from your fountain. Let the fountain flow here, Lord. Help us to believe it is here. Jesus is here. Come, Holy Spirit. We're yours. We're not asking for sensationalism, fanaticism, or emotionalism. We're asking for true Christianity. The experience of your love. Not just a theological fact, but an everyday reality. We want to commune with you. We're tired of empty prayer sessions, spouting words that have no heart reality. We're tired of just reading our Bibles and nothing is spoken to these hearts of ours. We cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. Father, please start making this word alive to us. Come, Holy Spirit. Now I commit your people to you. Everything I've said, Lord, it's in your hands. You will judge me for it, I know. But I trust you. I trust you because you love me. And you're just too good to be unwise and too kind to ever make a mistake. I trust you, Lord. We just love you. We just want you to know we do love you. You know we do. You know us better than we know our own hearts. We know that you know our hearts. We do love you. But we grieve over this little love. Oh, God. Come, fill us. Fill us in Jesus' name. Amen.